Here we go on a Monday night. Starting to get excited. Time for Iron Sports. True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Hope that you are doing well. Had a great weekend. And I know Ira had a great weekend. He's not in studio with us, but... For good reason, Ira, you're celebrating the summer, and I think you took in an event that we've never talked about on the show. Yes, I went to a polo match in uh, in East Hampton. Uh, I've I've been to a couple of polo matches before, but uh, I have to say, I do not have a reporting of the score uh, <laughs> or anything. But it was exciting to be at the polo match. It was more of a socialization event. We have it in Wellington all the time. This was not one of those events where there was the top line. This is sort of like a minor league polo event, but in the Hamptons, it's very big, and uh, it was just great to be at the event. It's a big social scene. Uh, so I would count that as my one sports event for the week. Yeah, and I, I mean, I have to ask. It, it, obviously, it's a huge part of our community here in South Florida and in Wellington. Is the spectacle in the Hamptons anything like what you'd see in Wellington? Because it's really pretty impressive here. I think that as as, expen- as a, a, what I would say in... I would say Wellington is better than the Hamptons. I feel like the crowds are it just at the Wellington, they have these, this huge clubhouse, tons of food, the best buffet I've ever seen, like conveyor belts of food, and how they have the um, stand set up and the table set up. I think it's just more professional than what they have at the Hamptons. Remember, in Wellington, almost every house in Wellington, it seems like, has a horse date. So it's like and these are the top of the top of the top of the line. Now they some of those riders do uh, perform or do perf- uh, play in uh, the Hamptons, but it's more just practice way. It's mainly the top riders are going to be in Wellington, but it was an event in uh, in the Hamptons. Make sure you follow along with Ira all across social media at Ira on Sports. I believe just uh, eclipsed twelve thousand followers on Instagram. So go ahead, get a follow across social media. At Ira on Sports, Ira, about 720, we're going to have an interview with Jeff Perlman. And this is, I don't want to say your favorite one, but this has got to be up at the top of the list. Oh, I, I've been t- trying to get Jeff on this show for so long, and I am so excited that he came on. I consider him the best sports writer. I mean, we had, we've had great sports writers on the show. John Feinstein is, comes to mind. But Jeff's books uh, have been unbelievable. Uh, he had and, and I, it, on everything from Roger Clemens to Walter Payton, Brett Favre, the 90s Cowboys, Barry Bonds, 86 Mets, uh, the three-ring circus book he had in the Lakers. He is probably one of the foremost late experts on the Lakers. He's funny, and his book, though, Showtime, is the basis for, of course, my favorite basketball TV show or basketball, any type of show, sports show ever, Winning Time, which is on HBO, which I encourage everybody to watch. So I'm so excited to have him on, and uh, I'm really this is really a great a dream come true to have Jeff Perlman on our show. Yeah, and we'll do that right about 7.20. So we got to hurry. Let's get right into it, Ira. Kevin Durant has found a way to monopolize headlines for the, I don't know, what's at the past month. It feels like it's been forever since he announced that he wants a trade. And in the last 48 hours or so, a an unlikely or perhaps likely candidate has maybe entered the ring, and you think this is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> this is – the argument is the Boston Celtics – the rumor is the Boston Celtics are in discussion with uh, the Brooklyn Nets to trade Jalen Brown and draft picks and maybe Marcus Smart for Kevin Durant. Now, first of all, it's supposedly that's what the Brooklyn Nets offered was Jalen Brown – when they said Jalen Brown, if I'm the Nets, I say, yes, we'll make that trade right away. Don't even sit, wait for the rest of the trade because this is a ridiculous, ridiculous trade. Jalen Brown is 25 years old. He's almost a decade younger than Kevin Durant. They just played in the, in the first round of the playoffs. Jalen Brown out played Kevin Durant. He's a better defender. He might not be the scorer, but remember, Kevin Durant has missed – in 1920, he was out with a torn Achilles. In 2021, he played 35 games. In 21-22, he played 55 games. That's 90 games in three years. He's 34 years old. I, it's, we, I, talk, I was trying to think what uh, similarities to pro football the trade. How about Joe Burrow for Aaron Rodgers? Now, Aaron, in that trade, Aaron Rodgers is considered oh, great better than Joe Burrow. But if you're the Bengals and they say, oh, we're going to trade Aaron Rodgers, the Bengals was, are you crazy? Are you cra- <laughs> we're, we're not trading you. <laughs> we don't care about Aaron Rodgers. We have Joe Burrow. Let Joe, you know, Aaron Rodgers for Patrick Mahomes. How about that trade? It's ridiculous. Tom Brady for Patrick Mahomes. This is, it's ludicrous to think that you would trade any player that's, in, uh, uh, that's 
25 years old for someone who's 34 years old when their skill set is even. Because Jalen Brown is only going to get better. I mean, he's been averaging in the 21-22. He averaged uh, uh, 23-22 and 23 points a game. Uh, Durant averaged it. But in the playoffs, he averaged 24 points a game. And in the playoffs, 23 points a game. And Durant averaged 26 points a game. He shot, Brown shot 50%. Durant shot 38% with Brown guarding him. And, and Durant had five turnovers a game. Brown only had two and a half turnovers a game. So the fact is that we just saw them play. Brown was the better player. Why would you put Brown, who's younger, with tons of draft picks for Durant? It is the stupidest thing. It has to come just from the Durant camp and from the, uh, the Brooklyn Nets. There's no way the Celtics make this trade. No, and I'm with you. Why would you do that? Even if you know the Aaron Rodgers and Joe Burrow comparison is great because Aaron Rodgers, yes, he's a better quarterback than Joe Burrow right now. But what do you have? Three years left of Aaron Rodgers, maybe, as opposed to a decade or 15 years, potentially, of Joe Burrow. It'd be insane for them to pull a deal like this. And that's why it's looking more and more to me. I were like, there's not going to be a trade that gets done. I can't see a trade partner. We've talked about it. But if you're throwing preposterous stuff like this out at us, I just don't see it happening. Right. I mean, the trade, the only trade that makes sense, because if you're the Nets, you have to get something back. You have Kevin Durant for the next four years. Only the Warriors have anything to really offer. They have picks. They have young players. They could make the trade. The Warriors have no interest in bringing Durant back. He was on the team. They offered a maxing contract. He left. They're happy. They just won the title. <laughs> if you're the Warriors, why are you adding Kevin Durant? You have, you have a great team. You have Curry. You have chemistry back on this team. Remember when Durant was there at the end, it was, it was, it was friction. There was, there was Durant, everybody else. Now they've got, they're never bringing Durant back to the Warriors. I just don't see where he goes. I don't see any team that can give enough to get Durant. I think the only option is for them to play this out with Durant, Simmons, and Kyrie. It's really the only way. You have these three players. Go see how the season goes. See if it works. Uh, the lineup is interesting. If everything goes right, they might have a very good team. But, I mean, there's if, 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 if Kyrie decides to play, if Durant stays healthy and if Ben Simmons can somehow play and recover some of his old form, yes. But I think that's the best thing for them. I just don't see a trade out here at all. So let's talk about James Harden. He did something that – I don't believe he's done before. He's taking less money to put players around him. We've seen it happen a lot in football. It happens in hockey. Not the most common thing in basketball, but he's going to be sticking around for a while. Well, not for a while, but what he did was he opted out of a $48 million extension and then signed for 33. So he gave back 15. He's earning $15 million less this year, but he got a guarantee next year for $36 million. But what everyone assumes, he's going to get in shape, he's going to get motivated, and then he's going to sign the five-year, $300 million contract. So he's making a bet on himself, and he's someone who people think is has declining skills, but Everyone, I mean, I like to see the Sixers with, to me, Harden and Embiid, with a healthy Harden and a healthy Embiid at the, playing at the highest levels, seems like one of the greatest teams in tandem you can imagine. Last year, we didn't we saw a show of that. Embiid got hurt in the playoffs. Harden was nowhere near with the Harden we saw when he played for the Rockets. So this is they're gambling on that. But I, I like the fact that Harden made this move, this commitment to the Sixers. This is this is a commitment at least for one year. I mean, he can opt out after the next year and go somewhere else. But at least we know for this year he's committed to to the Sixers, and uh, they're definitely going to be if Harden can get in shape. I mean, this is this is the only if if Harden can get in shape, and if Embiid can stay healthy next year, which he hasn't really stayed healthy in times past, but. He's been improving every year. This could be a key move for, for the Sixers. But I do like the fact that I, I would love to see. I mean, look, Harden making this commitment, and also they were able to sign other players around him. They, they signed P.J. Tucker from the Heat. So they're adding good players. That's the money they, they – by, by Harden taking less money, they were able to sign all these other players for as free agents. Let's jump over to baseball, Ira. And I got to say, they did a really good job with this broadcast, both the Home Run Derby and the All-Star Game were exciting, they were revitalized, at least as far as the production value went. It was cool seeing, you know, people talking on the side. They had Garrett Cole talking with Max Fried, talking with Smoltz in the booth. I, I think they really did a good job here. The game itself, not as exciting, but let's start with the home run derby. A lot of people thought that Pete Alonso, this was his to win, and didn't even make the finals. Well, I would say it's not his fault. He went uh, uh, up against uh, uh, Julio Rodriguez from Seattle, who uh, just it was amazing. I mean, 31 home runs uh, in it, it had the first two rounds was tremendous. I mean, here's a player that only had four rookies, only had, what, 16 home runs all year in baseball, 
and uh, was on fire on, on a roll. And Alonzo, I think if Alonzo would have been in any other bracket or how they would have went, he would end up winning this. Um, I feel bad, but I think as a Mets fan, you see how Alonzo's playing afterwards, I think it stays him motivated. He's going for his third win, but it was like one of those things where Soto, uh, in the first round, uh, the big upset, I said, look for Albert Pujols, that he beats number one seed Kyle Schwarber, Soto beat Ramirez by one, and then Alonzo beat Acuna, and then Julio Rodriguez had that 32 home runs over, over Seager. And then in the semifinals, that's Soto Pujols, they went to the uh, to the extra inning or with extra uh, whatever they want to call it, and was able to uh, to hang on for Juan Soto to win that, and then Soto beat Rodriguez in the finals. But I think if Alonso uh, would have made it to the finals, I think he would have won. Let's talk about uh, the game itself because we got to see great players on display, but the game got a little bit slow there in the middle. The pitching in this league, especially some of these top end guys, is really hard to get around. Well, what, I think when we talk about the All-Star game, I think what blew everybody away was the fact, as you just mentioned, they had microphones on the players, and, and they're in the field and they're talking. And I think that was what made it so great is that there was interaction. It really brought the players to life. And with baseball, one of the criticisms is there's so much downtime. It's so much the reporters are they're talking about other things. But when a player is on the field talking to an announcer and they're going over different things, I know it was different. It was cool. I think people really, really liked it, and I think that was a great – you hope that they could maybe do this, not in the playoffs when every game matters, but I, I would think that they could do this in more regular season games. Instead of having these interviews with the manager and the dugout in between innings, have the players on the field, have the mic. I thought that was, that was really cool. I mean, the beginning of the game is always great with the All-Star game. Kershaw, Otani. Otani gets on base. And then he gets picked off by Kershaw. And then in the first inning, it's always the, I, I said, I felt like if a run's going to be scored, it's going to be early. McClanahan for the uh, uh, Tampa gave up. Acuna got a double, bets a single. Machado hit a double play. Jimenez, that was a great double play on his part. And then Goldstein had a home run, made it 2 nothing. I mean, it could have been like a 3 or 4 nothing lead. But then in the fourth inning, Goslin, and this is what happens in these all-star games. The starters, uh, Goslin for the Dodgers, starters not used to coming in the fourth inning except in a playoff game so for him to come in a four innings without the warm-up that's when you get the runs off it and Stanton at home run uh with Ramirez on with two-run home run he became the MVP of the game and Buxton at a home run so they won 3-2 but from the fourth inning on there's there was four hits the rest of the game and no runs because each team is just bringing in these relievers that are throwing you know they're all closers they're all throwing a hundred and some miles an hour and they're going against the weaker uh, position players from both teams because the players are out by the fourth or fifth inning or the sixth inning. There's no starters left. So that's what I sort of expected. I was waiting for something to happen in the game. It didn't. But that's why the game sort of got boring. It's been in years past, like sort of boring near the end of the game because you really have these uh, closers just throwing lights out against players that aren't the super all-stars. But uh, the beginning game was exciting and I loved how the production was. Yeah, and, and watching it, I was thinking to myself, maybe they should have managerial decisions a little differently. Obviously, the starters start. But when you have to go against, like the NL had to go against Clay Holmes, Liam Hendricks, and then Emmanuel Classe, who just mowed them down, maybe you play your starters, then innings four, five, six, bring in the the, the last, you know, the lower-rated All-Stars, then bring in the second choices for the seventh, eighth, nine to try to get you to win the game, as opposed to bringing them in right after the All-Star game starters. Or maybe allow people to come back. I mean, that's yeah. another thing, is to, is to allow some of these hitters to come, you know, bring them back. I mean, look, they're not going to be so tired. Like, allow, uh, you know, allow Judge players, and you know, yeah. of course, if a, if a player's out of the game, they're out of the game forever. You can't bring them back. But maybe perhaps let players come back in the game in a game like this, because maybe that would add some excitement to the end of the game. Uh, I just, just an idea that I always thought would be pretty cool. I've, I've always thought that I hate the All-Star games where you bring in, you're waiting for the Pirate to come in, you know, something like that. But it would be cool if you had Otani in the ninth inning in, in the, in, to win the game rather than Otani just in the first or second inning and then not in the ninth inning. So let's talk about uh, the Hall of Fame inductions, which is going to be headlined by Big Poppy himself, David Ortiz. Well, Ortiz, yeah, you know, this past week, uh, you know, he he was inducted. Um, it was uh, it, we gave a nice speech, everything like that, in terms of getting in the game into into the Hall of Fame. I think the comment people we had, we had Jim Cott on our show, 
who was inducted, 283 games, 16 gold gloves. Uh, Gil Hodges, Bud Fowler, from, who was the, considered the first African-American baseball player, grew up actually in Cooperstown. Uh, Buck O'Neill, who was played in, in the uh, Black Leagues, uh, who was a tremendous uh, player, finally got in, probably should have been much more. Tony Oliva, uh, who, from Minnesota, who led the American League in hits five times, hit 304, many Minnesota, one of the first Latin players in baseball. But Ortiz getting in is a big thing because – the first drug test they did when they first did the drug testing, he failed that test. Now, it wasn't official. It wasn't released. It wasn't like a fill, but it was It was sort of when the media, they were supposed to be a random, but it wasn't random because they uh, they put the names. Someone's able to match the names up by mistake when they put it together. So if the point is, and I, I heard um, Jeff even talk about this before and some other writers, once you let Ortiz is in because everybody loves him. He's popular. He's friendly. He's great. Uh, Bonds is not. Uh, A-Rod has, still has his problems, but so are these others. But if you're letting Ortiz in when it's pretty well known that he failed a drug test, how are you not letting these other players in, Clemens, per se? So I think that we'll see what happens. But right now, Clemens, Bonds, Schilling, they're out. They can't even get it. They get another shot. And next year, you're going to have the Scott Rollins, the Todd Heltons. I mean, it's not – A-Rod is still on the bounty at 34%. Jeff Kent's on the last year. I, I just don't know who's going to get in next year. I mean, if Scott Rowland gets in, I just never – I watched Scott Rowland play for the Phillies. I, I just never felt Scott Rowland was an all-star. Just good player, but never – not all-star, an all-star, but not never a Hall of Fame baseball player. No, Scott Rowland, fine career, fine career, not a Hall of Famer. And we're kind of getting to the Hall of really good once we let Harold Baines in, and now it's uh, – you know, like you said, with, with lower amounts of uh, people on the ballot, a lot of guys still cast their ballot, so you might end up seeing one of these guys slip in. It's Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Jeff Perlman joins us in about five minutes. But, Ira, so you're in New York, and I don't know if you timed it out like this, but got lucky because you're going to get to see an interleague match. Yankees are playing the Mets this week. Well, the last time I saw uh, the World Series was two thousand back in 2000 when the Yankees played the uh, uh, the, the Mets. So this is going to be in terms of with the Piazza game and Clemens and they won the Yanks one four ones. I haven't been to an early game in a long time. They played when I looked at the number, I couldn't believe it. The Yanks since they've been playing what since the nineties, uh, the Yanks have a 76 and 58 record, actually 35 and 30 at city field where these two games are going to be played. Um, of course the four one postseason victory. There's um, Buck Showalter is the manager, of course, for the Mets. And if you remember, he was the manager of the Yankees. Casey Stengel, Yogi Bear, and Dallas Green were also managers of the Yankees and Mets. So uh, it's exciting. This is a big thing in New York. I, I'm pumped for this game. It's, it's hard to make a regular season baseball game in July, like a big game. But this, could be, this is exciting to have the Yankees and Mets. Uh, I was looking through some players that played both on both teams, uh, the Daryl Strawberries, the Ricky Henderson, David Cohn, Robbie Cano, Al Leiter. But uh, uh, this is uh, – it used to be the Yankees and Mets would play in the, minor, in the spring training, and that was called the Commissioner's Cup or whatever, some sort of uh, Mayor's Cup, the Mayor's Trophy. And, and the Mets didn't really care about the game, but Steinberg says we have to win this game, and they would always Yankees would go full board to win, and now it's really an official game that both teams are now in first place uh, playing for. So I, I'm excited to be there Tuesday, Wednesday at City Field, sold out. Going to be great to be at those games. Scherzer pitches on Scherzer for the Mets versus Herman on Wednesday. Montgomery on and Walt versus Walker on Tuesday. Uh, just a moment or two before we get to I, I mean, before we get to Jeff uh, Perlman here on Iron Sports, but I, I wasn't aware of this. But you had informed me that there was an interesting ruling that maybe is going to affect clothing, hats, pretty much you know anything you could throw a logo on. I mean, I haven't heard that much discussion. It just came down. It was it was I think that this uh, yet yeah, last Friday, but. The decision was that the uh, there's a vintage company called Vintage Brand. People buy Vintage Brand all the time. It's a it's a type of brand. And I never knew they don't have a license agreement. They just put like Penn State on their thing on their on their shirts and hats. And you get Penn State, and they sometimes have the logos, and they not have a logo. But they were paid a license. They're called a serial infringer of a trademark infringement. And they're like saying, well you know, we're not really infringing on Penn State. We're just showing our pride. And when people wear those shirts, it's just showing their pride to Penn State. They're so proud. 
And so UCLA, Oregon, Washington, all these schools have been suing vintage. And a judge, you thought, oh, this is going to be an easy victory. But a judge actually cited in for initial decision, this probably will get overturned. But we don't know with the with vintage saying, oh, yeah, it's OK. I can understand this. These teams, these play, people, when they wear this, they're just showing their pride. There's no trademark infringement. So, so it would give anyone a right to write 10 shirts and like use the logo, which would then hurt the brand because these teams, as you can see, they all put the logo. They all protect it. We can't even say the word Super Bowl. You say Super Bowl. It's like, oh, that's terrible. Super Bowl will sue you. So this could be an interesting decision. It was uh, I found it was unique that it was uh, a Penn State a, a judge went to Penn State. So it was a Penn State <laughs> judge, a judge that went to Penn State Law School that ruled against Penn State in this decision. Really interesting how that turned out. And I, I look uh, forward to seeing how this progresses through the courts because it's probably going to get uh, appealed here. But now let's go to Jeff Perlman. It's Iron Sports. This is Iron Sports. Um, we've had a lot of great authors on the show over the last couple of years. But of course, now we're going to have arguably the greatest sports author writing right today, Jeff Perlman. You might have read many of his books on uh, the 86 Mets, Barry Bonds, the Cowboys, Roger Clemens, Walter Perry, Walter, P- Walter Payton, Brett Favre. And, of course, his Laker books, uh, Three Ring Circus, and his famous book, Showtime. Jeff Perlman, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Uh, there's no way, there's no, argue, there's no argument that can be made that I am the greatest sports writer living today, but it is incredibly kind of you to say that. But I could probably name, I know I can name many better than me. Thank you. <laughs> I don't, but you're the only one that has a TV show. Like, you're the only one that, I mean, there's a lot of people writing great books, but you're the one with the TV show that everyone's watching, that I've now watched twice, that, I've, that I've, I'm probably on my third one because I keep trying to get everyone to watch it. We talk about it on our show all the time. And I've read your book now twice because I read your book 10 years ago, Showtime, and for, in preparation for this interview, I read it again this weekend. Wow. Well, when I was a kid coming up and my mom said, you know, what's your goal? What do you want to do in life? I said, one day, 30 years from now, I just want to be on Ira's show, and I want him to tell me that I'm the greatest sports writer of all time, and then I'll know I made it. And if I have a TV show and he watched it, and then he read my book, I really know I've made it. So I will say I've made it. Well, we, can, we've, had, we've, had, we've had Seth Wickersham on our show. We had John Feinstein. So I've had some good ones. But, uh, but yeah, those I, guys are awesome. I, those guys are amazing. Just in the past month. But anyway, let's let's turn to Showtime. And you write this book in 2014, and everyone loves it. It's a great book about the Lakers and about Magic and Kareem and Jerry Buss. And then how does this, how is our people that are reading about this, that weren't even alive back then, and everyone is watching this TV show, how did the book become this, t- this TV show 10 years later? I mean, a lot of it was luck. Like, uh, it really, in fact, almost all of it. In fact, all of it was luck. I was, um, I wrote the book. Came out in 2014. People, you know, have asked me, "Did you, did you think one day it would become blank?" Uh, no, never, never, ever, ever. I just wrote the book. That's it. And um, we were living in New Rochelle, New York, at the time. And a writer named Jim Hecht, whose major screen credit was uh, one of the animated films, an animated film, um, called me and said, "I really love this book. I really think it could be something. Would you be willing to meet me?" And I didn't, I was just like, ah, whatever. I don't really buy this. But if you want to come to my house, you can have dinner with us. So his name's Jim Hecht. He came Easter Sunday, I think 2014. And um, because we're all Jewish, he's Jewish. He came to our house and he showed up and he just sort of went on and on why this could be this. And if you would just give me a chance with the rights, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't have anything going on. So I, I gave him the rights to the book, never thought anything of it. Through the years, he would give me updates. I never took it seriously. And then um, one day, a couple years ago, he said, uh, Adam McKay wants to meet us at his house. And I didn't know who that was. So I Googled Adam McKay. And turns out he's done a ton of huge movies, like The Big Short, and he did Don't Look Up more recently, and you know, a million different things. And uh, we went to Adam McKay's house in California, and he's saying how much he loves it. And I still didn't believe it. I just didn't believe it. I was like, okay, whatever. And then one day I'm home and a friend of mine sends me a press release about Adrian Brody being cast in this HBO show based on my book. <laughs> and then I get another release about John C. Riley. And then I get the one, the big one was Sally Field. Actually, I, I texted my wife and I said, okay, an enormous actress, think biggest actress you could think of is going to be in a series based on my book. Who is it? 
And she said, Meryl Streep. And I said, no. And she said, Sally Field. And I said, yes. And it just kind of took off from there. It's been crazy. Um, the idea is also there was a point that there was this issue with McKay because maybe Will Ferrell was going to be in as the character mm-hmm. of Jerry Buss instead of as John Riley. I think the one thing about the TV show that I love is the casting. These characters are amazing. And from Michael Chiklis as Red Auerbach, and uh, Quincy Isaiah's performance of Magic Johnson is unbelievable. I mean, it is, it's like you went back in time and put Magic in there. I, it's, it's probably the hardest job because we don't know these other characters. Many people haven't seen Inners with Jerry Buss, but people see Magic every day. They hear him see him on TV. He probably had the toughest job in terms of carrying off Magic. I mean, the casting has been ridiculous. It's been so good. And I knew, I will say, from very early on, it was clear how seriously they took this. Um, I remember I got a call from someone in the uh, props department and they said, uh, do you have any idea what material the 1979 Lakers summer league jerseys would have been made of? (laughs) Because we really want to replicate it. And like when I went on set early on, they had the basketballs that they used in 1979 and but they didn't buy old basketballs. They made, they recreated the 79 basketballs to all the specifics you could think of. It reminded me of when uh, James Cameron was making Titanic and you'd read about this sort of madness that he went through to make it accurate. And they did the same. And the ca- I mean, to me, the, I agree, John C. Riley, amazing. Sally Field, amazing. Brody, amazing. But the casting of Kareem and Magic, I mean, they could have taken a thousand years and I don't think they could have cast it any better than, than, than those two guys. It's just uncanny. When I'm in Los Angeles, I go to the sports club LA, which is like Equinox, and I see Magic and I would... I run on the treadmill. Magic isn't like, you know, in a private room. He's in the middle of the gym. And so when you're running for an hour on a treadmill and you watch Magic and he interacts because I always wear Penn State stuff when I was there and he's met Michigan State and he would yell at me and I once bought him breakfast. But anyway, so the point is that you see him interact. That's Magic. The Magic you show in this or in the book and also in the TV show, that is Magic even now because he's he's hugging everyone, talking to everyone in the middle of the floor at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday while he's trying to get his workout in and with his aging knees and everything and that's that's and he and i think that uh quincy isaiah played him absolutely perfectly yeah and we um i've gotten to know quincy a bit um we had a party at our house i've gotten to a few events and blah blah blah. he's lovely like he's such a nice guy and he really is very outgoing and very extroverted and he's also from michigan and he's a former college athlete and he just has this thing about him uh a magnetism that's really beautiful and the other thing i mean my favorite, I always say this, my favorite thing about the show by far is it's not the big stars. It's all these guys who are now starring in an HBO show. Uh, like the guy who plays Michael Cooper, Delonte D'Souza. Uh, a year and a half ago, he was flipping houses in Maryland. And he sees a casting call. And he just does it via Zoom because it was during the pandemic. And he winds up getting this role as Michael Cooper in an HBO series. Uh, the guy who plays Mark Landsberger, Austin Aaron, was a former Cal wide receiver who is trying to make it in acting, and he, he tried out for this role. I mean, on and on and on, the stories of guys, out-of-nowhere guys who suddenly find themselves in a hit series, it warms my heart. Did they ask you to go back when they – to because I know there's an emphasis in the uh, TV show that's different than the book. The book has a lot of – about the games and about the players. It, it's, there is a little – it's an emphasis. Uh, did they have actually ask you to go back and do further research about different things? I know that there's a character, the magic development back in Lansing is in the TV show, not so much in the book. Um, Jeannie Buss's role was, is changed. Was that something that they asked you to do, or did they just do it on their own? How was that done? No, they, they did some really, really – they hired a bunch of researchers. They did a ton of research. I mean, it's – I guess you would say it's based on my book and they paid me for the rights and all that, but they also, you know, read everything you could find about the Lakers. So any other book that was written about that time period, they were reading. Um, They had me, I I definitely sent them all my notes from the reporting experience of Showtime. And I did dig a little deeper when they needed it, but I'm telling you, they, they were so meticulous and so dedicated to the reporting um, that they took it to a different level. They really did. There were, are you, hurt by some of the criticism they missed a fact here a fact there in terms of like when the first laker game was played is it boston um those type of things who was sitting around the room when they were arguing about hamburger or sand dabs when the uh magic had the dinner with uh, bus and cook um there were some of those airs and then i think that sort of overshadowed the fact this was just an amazing tv show well 
it's all, I totally get it. I mean, I've said to my wife a million times, I'm a horrible, so I'm a horrible viewer of sports movies. Horrible. I hate 42. I hate We Are Marshall. I hate Remember the Titans. I, I mean, I just, I can't watch them. Moneyball, because I watch them and I see all the leaps they take, right? And and it bothers me. As a sports guy, it bothers me. So I can't say I, I'm thrilled with it all. I just, you just come to a realization that this is sort of the process. And the guy who plays Jack McKinney is a veteran actor, stage actor named Tracy Letts. And I had him on my podcast a while ago and I asked him about it. And he said, the thing is real life is boring. He said, if you were really, if you were just going to depict real life as events happen, it'd be boring. You'd have Jerry West walk into an office. You'd have him go to the bathroom. You'd have him scratch his nose. Like you, this is not a documentary. It's a you know dramatic series, and you have to accept that. So for me, it definitely was an adjustment because when you write books, you're facts, 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 facts. So it, it wasn't – I can't lie. It wasn't easy for me at first. It was a little hard for me to sort of grasp and understand and accept and embrace. And then once I did, I, was, I became comfortable with it. I, just, I don't know any other alternative. We had Paul Westhead on the show about two months ago, about a month and a half ago, right before the finals, and we talked to him about the book. And, of course, he said, well, I didn't quote Shakespeare all the time, but he didn't say, oh, I hate this, it's terrible, I don't like the depiction of me. He seemed like, you know, he's watched everything. We also had Dan Shaughnessy on the show, who wrote the book, Wish It Would Lasted Forever, from the Celtics' perspective. Yeah. And uh, so it's interesting, we've had all these concepts. But I know Jerry West was upset about his portrayal, even though he wrote a book called... Um, about West by West, my charm West tormented life. Yeah, yeah, where he talked about how he was. His book was titled "Was My Charm Tormented Life." So it, as much as he wasn't unhappy with how the book, how the movie portrayed him, he wrote it in his own autobiography, quoting like Charles Barkley. I was misquoted in my own autobiography. Well, I always say like you have to understand. So you're, I say this to people with the show. In fact, I've said this a million times. Like you're Jerry West, and you're home watching the show. And you had nothing to do with the show. You weren't paid by the show. You weren't a you weren't a consultant with the show. And I'm not saying he should have been, but he wasn't. And you're home watching it, and here's this character, Jerry West, based on you. And you know you're not happy with some of the things they've done with it. Um, I totally get it. Like I totally get it. I understand. If there was a story about, if there was a TV series about journalists in Southern California. And they had a character named Jeff Perlman who has a <laughs> wife named Catherine and lives in the same town and blah, blah. blah. I'd be like, wait, this isn't, I didn't, that, that's not cool. So I totally get it. That said, I just don't think, I think number one, the depiction ultimately is very flattering. And number two, if you read his book and you read about him, it's a pretty fair depiction. Like that's what I don't understand. It's actually a very fair depiction. So I find it a little weird that he's so upset. I, in a way, I would understand Westhead being more upset than Jerry West because I kind of, you know, with Westhead, it's definitely feels a little more exaggerated. Like Westhead was a really smart guy. He was a very smart coach. Um, West, I think they kind of nailed to be honest with you. And then I know Kareem was upset about the book, but who, I mean, Kareem was said, well, like I was this nice, uh, Gargate, you know, Gregarious guy. He wasn't. I mean, that was so. I for him to be upset, his portrayal. I mean, I again, I think that there was a lot of good things. I mean, if you watch, I think the first episodes West was one thing, but as it goes on, you saw how he was the, you know, he was very hold the steady course when he went and took McKinney aside and said, you know, meet halfway with this team. And you saw how the genius of West throughout it, picking the players, working with the players. I, I think it made him look good. And as the as the, I think people looked at maybe the first episode and not the other nine. I know, you know, I just, honestly, I try to see it from their perspective and you're home watching the show and there's a character based on you and you had no involvement. Like, I actually get it. I'm not saying they're right. I'm not saying they're wrong, but I do understand what it is to be Kareem or Jerry West watching this huge show on HBO with a character based on you and thinking, wait, I don't, I don't, I don't like this. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I don't feel good about this. Like, again, if they did a show on journalists and it was me, I'd, I'd, under, I'd probably feel the same way, so I actually get it. The, the central point of the whole TV show, your book, everything is Jerry Buss and how Jerry Buss buys this team, and, and not just Jerry Buss, but just the changing of the NBA. I mean, the fact that I go to all these NBA final games, I, I travel around and you see the music and the dancers and this, and it wasn't how basketball was and how, 
did Jerry Buss's vision of this is really what we see today, not just in basketball, but in all sports. And I think that's what you emphasize in your book and also with the Forum Club and also with the movie. I think that's what makes, that's what's so exciting about from the business perspective of building this brand and building the sport. I mean, the guy was a freaking visionary. There's no doubt about it. And he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He should be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. His impact on the game, I always say, you kind of love it or you hate it. When you go to a get basketball game and there's nonstop entertainment and there's nonstop music and there's not a moment for you to catch your breath or think or have a quiet moment to turn to your kid and say, oh, did you see that dunk? Because the music is blasting in your ear or someone's shooting a T-shirt cannon into the stands or the dancing girls are coming out, you know, whatever. That's all Jerry Buss. And he saw the NBA not as a basketball venue but as an entertainment venue. Um, so when you look at the modern league, and you see how huge it is and how it's much closer. I mean, it's far surpassed, far surpassed Major League Baseball and is much closer to the NFL than it is to Major League Baseball as far as popularity nowadays. I mean, that's all. It's always been a beautiful game. I agree with Jerry Buss. Basketball is a beautiful, beautiful sport. But he really saw ways to sort of market that. Uh, the NBA owes that guy, I mean, everything. And Paul Westhead cr- um, credited Jack McKinney in terms of coming up with Showtime, saying, look, if Jack McKinney doesn't crash that bike, we're going to be talking Jack McKinney is one of the greatest coaches of all time, the one with multiple titles. You mentioned that in the book also. I mean, that is sort of he's the lost character in this in terms of that he had that injury so early in the season, but Westhead and even Riley took upon what McKinney had. And even, you know, Westhead made something smart. He goes, Riley ran McKinney's system better than Westhead ran McKinney's system. That's why in some ways Westhead got fired is because Riley actually implemented it more. I mean, I... I'm all in on the Jack McKinney fan club. I actually have a, after the book come out, came out, he wrote me a really lovely letter that I have framed in my office. Um, I think it's one of the great tragedies in sports. I also, one of the things I love about the series, like love, love, love about the series, is that people know the name Jack McKinney again. People are watching the show, and it means something. You know, he was really forgotten to history. He barely coached in the NBA. He barely coached the Lakers. He came back later and was kind of diminished. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's not like, is it as simple as Pat Riley took over the McKinney system and ran it and, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, like Riley was an amazing coach. Riley adapted to his players. And Riley is one of the great examples in modern coaching history of taking what you have, seeing what you have, and accurately utilizing it, which is no easy trick. Um, but the basis of it all was McKinney and his system and this idea that we're going to run, we're going to stop being this stilted offense. Uh, so if he's getting his due because of this show, I, it makes me so happy. And the other, what the characters between Magic and Norm Nixon, and I did not realize until I looked, was doing the research that Norm Nixon is played by his son, which is pretty cool. Um, in, in that, at the scene where they're at the white party uh, at, Don, uh, at Sterling's house and they played that basketball on that court is, I mean, I can't get that out of my mind, but you really in the book developed into it and also the TV show about how this Nixon and the rivalry between Magic and Nixon, but then how they you know, later on became closer and closer until the end where they actually, Magic might have forced Nixon out. But it was, it was that uh, whatever between Nixon and Magic. Well, first of all, it's cool because um, Devon Nixon is his son. He plays him. And Devon was also, he was Whitney Houston's son in The Bodyguard. And he was... Um, he played the kid in Terminator 2. Oh, my he gosh. Really, wow. Yeah, he's been in a bunch of things. And um, he's a really nice guy. And uh, I, lo- I love, I felt like this, when he was cast, it gave some authenticity to the show right off the bat. You know, like, because it's all right, one of the major characters' sons is playing him. That adds something, that shows something. Um, and that relationship is fascinating. I mean, you're Norm Nixon. You're a cocky point guard. You're really good, like, really good. One of the five best point guards in the NBA. You're in L.A., you're playing with this legendary figure, Kareem. You're a centerpiece of this team. And, oh, they're drafting a new point guard. And not only that, he's this sort of, you know, outgoing, handsome, dynamic guy who's coming in, and you have to deal with it. Um, it's one of the great awkward battles in, uh, in modern sports. I really love it. And they did come. You know, Norman Magic wound up okay. And then, of course, Norm was traded to the Clippers, which at the time was like being sent off to Siberia. Uh, but, you know, they worked out well. They played well together. The idea of running two point guards actually could work on a team. So 
like the one scene where they had to practice where they decided they'd both be instead of the A team and B team, they're both the A team and they started dunking. And that was, and we see that in basketball now, the positionalist basketball, everybody playing off each other. The other dynamic in the relationship was Magic and Kareem. Uh, the fact I love the scenes when at the training camp when Magic had to bring the uh, the New York Times or the newspaper and the orange juice and yeah. Kareem was never happy with with that and how that delved in relationship between Magic being so fun and wanting to the whole hugging like I I wanted to hug him after the first game and he goes there's 81 other games don't just hug me after the first game. Yeah, actually I love that moment. Um, I loved it when I was reporting the book. The idea of this guy and he's so happy. Like you beat the Clippers, the crappy Clippers at the last second, and you think you just won the NBA championship, and you're going crazy, and you will not let go of Kareem, and you just love Kareem, and Kareem's like, seriously, man, we got 81 more games to go. You don't have to be this excited. Um, it's one of the fun. It's one of the most unique pairings in NBA history. I mean, you know, Kobe Shaq was fascinating for its own ways and sort of the yin and yang of it all, but the Magic and Kareem. Uh, personalities were so opposite, just so opposite. And Kareem was used to kind of this quiet way and people being a little bit subservient around him. And Magic comes along and he's all of a sudden this dynamic, youthful centerpiece. Uh, it was not easy. Um, and I, I always think Magic did an, an amazing job. He was very deferential. It was always Cap. You know, this is Cap's team. This is Cap's way. We're going we're, we're, we're going as far as Cap can take us. And he could have been a jackass at that point, and he could have been cocky, and he had a big contract, and it wouldn't have affected him. But he wasn't. He was polite, and he was deferential, and he really tried to sort of focus on Kareem first. And would you say, if you're comparing your three-ring circus book where you went through the Kobe and Shaq dynamic, Kobe did not have that deference towards Shaq, and I get that was, that was the one no. thing I'm seeing from reading both books. Yeah, there's a lot more hostility between Shaq and Kobe than between Magic and Kareem. With Magic Kareem, I would say it was more frustration on Magic's part. I want to run, 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 and this guy is a slowing down center. But it wasn't, uh, there was no, you know, ill will or disrespect. And Shaq Kobe was definitely ill will and disrespect. We're talking to Jeff Perlman, author of the book Showtime, which is the book that's, ba- the winning time is based on. Uh, just a few more questions in terms of uh, the whole Boston, Larry Bird, the robbery. I mean, you could not, as I said, Shakespeare could not come up with this. The fact that they're on two different coasts, two different towns. You have two players, Magic and Larry, that are totally different. Two franchises that are different. Two owners that are different. I mean, it's just amazing. And the fact that it, it's too bad. They played in a nine-year like nine period. They played three times in the finals. You would, would hope that there would have been like a seven-year war where they would have battled every single year. But it was just that robbery. And I think that your book and, of course, the TV show brings that out. Uh, yeah, I love it. There's a scene, my favorite scene in the whole first season is, um, and it didn't really happen. It's sort of just emblematic, is uh, Magic and um, the Lakers come to Boston and there's a press conference with uh, Magic and Bird. And Magic is all giddy and Bird is like, let's just get this thing over with. And Bird is spitting into a tin can. Uh, the actor who plays Bird, Sean Patrick Small, is just freaking so good. And he wasn't the original guy. He cast, he cast uh, Bo Burnham for the role. And he dropped out at the last minute for some reason. And they got this guy, Sean Patrick Small, pretty unknown. And uh, he just nails it, like nails Bird. And I love the moment he just spin tobacco into a can. Let's get, this, let's get this thing on. And, you know, he just has nothing. He doesn't even want to look at Magic. He just hates Magic Johnson. Uh, it's my favorite scene in the first season. I mean, the TV show spent a lot of time talking about McKinney. Is he going to come back? Is he not? When I interviewed Westhead, and even your book said it's, it was pretty assumed that he wasn't. You mentioned in the book that he showed up at a Laker game and Bus came up to him and didn't, didn't, he didn't recognize him. And I mean, the TV show was actually went to his house. But uh, that just whole dynamic, I mean, I, I can't even think of any other thing in sports where a coach gets hurt and then is sort of healthy enough to coach and is he, good, is he able to come? You see it about players, but rarely from coaches. No, it's all very Shakespearean. It really is. And um, I'm telling you, it's a freaking tragedy. It's such a tragedy. This guy... He gets his job. It's a dream. He's a really smart coach. The players like him. And not only does he fall, does he have a bike accident, and not only does he land on his head flipping over the handlebars, but he does it going to play tennis with the guy who will wind up replacing him. So he was, I mean, you know, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And he's a the thing I always found amazing is he, he was a John Doe in the hospital. That's how different the times were. The head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers is unidentifiable and nobody knows who he is when he's brought to the hospital. 
Um, it's, it's, I mean, it, again, it, it makes me really happy that this show brings some attention to Jack McKinney because his story is worth telling. The 1980 NBA Finals where they played the Sixers uh, and won. Of course, I, I love the fact that the TV show and your book highlighted the the play that Kareem did in five, the fact that he sprains his ankle and it, it can't even walk, but comes back and has that monster game in five. And then, of course, uh, yeah. magic jumping center in six. But that whole aspect, oh, it's just so exciting to watch it. Even when Riley, you had in the movie, I don't know if that was true or not, when Riley gave him the results of the uh, magic, the results of the uh, rookie of the year voting. But uh, that finals game and how the, both of it, that was just such a seminal moment. I mean, people talk about, we'll talk about that for 100 years from now. Uh, I don't know if they'll be talking about a hundred years from now, maybe 50 years from now. It's, uh, yeah, it was amazing. I mean, the whole idea of magic stepping in the whole idea that your point guard, is going to play center is ridiculous. And that he insists he's going to, my favorite thing is he, he walks onto the, uh, he walks onto the plane and, um, this is in the book. He walks onto the plane and he goes, never fear mother blank and magic Johnson is here. <laughs> and he sits, you know, he sits in Kareem's seat usually reserve seat in the plane and all the other guys kind of roll their eyes like, Oh, who is this guy? And, um, it's just, you know, it's just magical. I, I'm not to be cliche. It really was magical. And, you know, he shoot, he's shooting the baby hook and he just, yeah, I, I maybe they will be talking about a hundred years now. It's one of the great performances in the history of the NBA. Um, Jeannie Buss is given a great role in this. I mean, I loved because I like from the business perspective, her idea to come up with the Laker girls and her to say, you know, this is what Jerry Buss wants. And this is the vision and the forum club and those things. Your book doesn't highlight her so much. Um, is it something that they felt like this was necessary in order to get maybe a Laker buy in on the scene? Or was she actually involved? I mean, it seems like was she actively involved in the beginning of this working with Claire Rothman, who was the director of program of the whatever promotion for the uh, uh, forum at the time? I mean, it was their decision. I have no problem with it. Um, it kind of ties it to the modern Lakers. Um, I don't think her role was quite as quite as large as it's made out to be in the show. That's okay, dramatic license. Um, you know, she became obviously something huge, and I think it, I do think it's important to sort of show that dynamic between her and her dad, and that she was early on dismissed and kind of set aside, and he really wanted to sort of cater more toward the sons. But, you know, as we've learned, Jerry Buss's sons are a bunch of knuckleheads. <laughs> Jeannie was the brains in that family. So, yeah, she doesn't, she barely appears. I mean, I love Jeannie. Um, she she was very helpful with both books. But they definitely gave her a heightened role in the series that she didn't have in the in the book. That scene in Game uh, game 5 in Philly when uh, Jerry brings his two sons to the game and has Jeannie stay at home. And then they're sitting in the stands yeah. and not even, you know, going crazy, not even paying attention to the game. That was a great scene. What, yeah, what, I agree. What's next season? I mean, it's been picked up for next year. What do you think they're going to just do the whole next, the final year, which I don't want to give anything away, but guess what? The Lakers do not make the finals. But is what, what is the plans for the next season in terms of the, the episodes? Next season, aliens attack. <laughs> and Mork, Mork comes out of a spaceship and kidnaps Magic Johnson. It's a total twist on the Lakers series. <laughs> um, I don't... I'm not really supposed to say. I know it goes into the next uh, two years. Um, so the next two seasons in the book basically are um, they lose to Houston the following year when with Westhead as a coach, and then the following year um, Magic kind of leads a revolt, and it's the rise of Pat Riley. So I know it delves into those. But I don't know. They're writing it now, so I don't have any amazing specifics for you. Maybe they draft Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal comes, the friction between Shaq and Kareem, or those things. But And then also, Jeff, I know you have a book coming out in October, and you're, it's, you, you pick, not only are you the, one of the best, what I like about your writing style is that you talk about these athletes, and you don't just say magic's this, magic that, but it's through the lenses of all the other players that were on the team, what they saw, what they... And, but I just, that's what I love in all the books that you wrote. But you have this Bo Jackson, the, the topics are also great with these great characters. And you have Bo Jackson, who a lot of people, I think, forgot. I mean, Bo Jackson has sort of disappeared. But at one point growing up, I mean, Bo Jackson was everything. He was LeBron, Tom Brady combined as one person. I mean, I had, I had multiple Bo Jackson posters on my wall as a kid. <laughs> and um, I still think he's the greatest athlete who's ever lived. Uh, I went hard in this one. I interviewed about 720 people and deep dive. I mean, the, the guy was insane. I mean, the guy, 
He grew up in uh, Bessemer, Alabama. He went to McAdory High School. And his senior year, he won the state decathlon, and hurt his ankle. But the next year in a state playoff game, baseball, his coach needed him to pitch. He hadn't pitched all year. He literally hadn't pitched all year. The day before he won the state decathlon, he starts in the state playoff game, strikes out 15 batters, gets the win. He was a ridiculous athlete. Everything he did was utterly preposterous. Um, in high school, he stole 91 out of 92 bases all time. Uh, I mean, he just like everything he did. There are a million stories of him jumping over cars and jumping out of pools, like flat-footed out of pools that are up to his waist. And, you know, from the all-star home run to the Harold Reynolds throw to running over Brian Bosworth, on and on and on, to coming back with an artificial hip. Um, he's just mythology, sports mythology brought to life. Jeff, I'm so excited. And the book, this book is going to come out in October. It's still October, right? Yep, October. Can't wait to, cannot wait to read it. Jeff, I know, thank you for this time. I've been really, really appreciated. I'm a total oh, yeah. uh, follower of your books and also the Showtime. I'm probably going to see it another two more times. I love it. I get people who don't watch it. I'm like, I'll watch it with you. Like, let's go watch it because I feel <laughs> like, I feel like I'm spreading the gospel of winning time because it's, I go, this is really, really good. Like, I don't like basketball. I, I, people that don't like basketball have watched this and love it. So that's what I like so much about the show. My mom, hey, my mom has no has never watched an NBA game, and she really likes the show. So there you go. Well, Jeff, thanks a lot uh, for coming on Iron Sports. I really, really appreciate it, and best luck with your with Bo Jackson's book. All right, thank you, Ira. Really a fun interview there with uh, Jeff Perlman here on Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. About nine minutes to go, Ira. Let's talk some golf. And we were looking at the field going into the 3M, thinking this is not all that impressive, <laughs> and it turned out. We had the two favorites come out on top, and that's something that you very rarely see in a golf tournament. But I guess when the bottom end is a little thinner, this kind of thing can happen. Well, we, uh, Tony Finau won at 17 under par. Sunjay M at 14 under par. Uh, it was second. And it was the field. It, it's what I've been saying time and time again, why we live golf as a, is going to, I think, eventually supplant the PGA Tour is that the star golfers are not playing in these tournaments. And you don't even know, like, the fourth or fifth or sixth favorite of this tournament. There's 150 golfers who play in it. Um, it, was, it was Tony's uh, third tour win. Uh, he won it last year in the Northern Trust. And he's one of these golfers that in the majors, he does very well. He's 16 in the world, but he's, this is uh, for win, you know, for, he got his win here, so he needed that. Uh, this week, you have the Rocket Mortgage Classic. Uh, Finau is the second favorite. He's 12 to 1 favorite. Uh, Patrick Kennelly is 10 to 1. Will Zalator is 14 to 1. Cam Young, we saw in the last tournament at the British Open, was 16 to 1. Uh, the rest of the field is sort of average. Ricky Fowler at 80 to 1. But compare that to the Live Tour, which has DJ, Dustin Johnson, 5 to 1. The Taller Goose, who was on our show, who's playing really well right now, is 10 to 1. Bryson DeChambeau, 12 to 1. Louis, Louis Oldside, 12 to 1. Brooks Kepka, 18 to 1. Patrick Reed, 18 to 1. The field is better. The live field at Bedminster is by far better than the field at the Rocket Mortgage uh, Classic. And, that was, and that's because you don't see the Justin Thomas the Rory McIlroy, the Jordan Spieth. So even though these golfers are there, it's going to be, it's almost even more pressure on these golfers because now they, people are going to ask them to play more when they really want to step back and maybe play less. And that's where like a week like tomorrow, like next week, Liv is not on TV. It's a YouTube channel. I don't know how I'm going to watch this tournament. But the fact is that Rock and Mortar is going to be on TV and people are going to say, wait, where's all the stars? I think this is one of those things where we, we talk about about Liv and that's the one thing that they have going for them is that the, the players eventually, every now and then more and more players are going to Liv. Do you want to talk about uh, what we can expect um, this weekend from uh, Liv and Bedminster? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the fact that uh, I think that I really I think you added first of all um, this past week, Stenson Hedrick Stenson joined Liv, Jason Kograk, who and Charles Howe. We were waiting for Cameron Smith to join, he didn't, which I think means that he's going to go back to the Tour Championships, wait for the FedEx playoffs, which are the next month, and then join. You're going to see a lot more golfers at that point. They, Charles Howe. Uh, 90 top 10 finishes, he's 42 years old, um, three PGA Tour victories, big sort of okay name. People know him. Kokrak is ranked 42nd in the world. I think what they did was Henrik Stenson, he's the European Ryder Cup captain. So he's the Ryder Cup captain of Europe now. Like he is the captain of the team going next year, and he decided to leave for Liv. Now give up his captaincy. So I think he's not one of the best golfers in the world. I mean, like ranked 150th, but I just think the symbolism of that. And the other thing everyone's been talking about, about Liv, is Charles Barkley. Charles Barkley is going to play in the Pro-Am on Thursday at Liv, and then he's saying, 
I might sign as the announcer. Now, whether that means you have to give up TNT or not, but I think they've already got David Faraday as an announcer. Of course, they're not on the network. But if they bring in Charles Barkley, then again, you're bringing another big name into this. Barkley could be, and all, I think they should pay Barkley a lot because he might be, besides signing all these other golfers, Barkley might be the biggest signing that Liv can have because people don't watch golf, quote, for the announcers, but Barkley is a huge draw and would, would sort of give that different type of an appeal to a Liv golf event. So next on the docket for the PGA Tour is going to be the Rocket Mortgage. What are we looking at here? Well, yeah, I think it Canelay at 10 to 1 and Will Zalatoris. You're like you're interested to see if Cam Young was playing well. I, I like Cam Young. I think Cam Young right now is playing lights out golf. And I would I'm I think this is this is his tournament, the Rocket Mortgage. Uh, remember Dustin Johnson and was like this <laughs> was sponsored. You had a lot of these golfers that went to live that were sponsored by Rocket Mortgage. You saw them in commercials, then they got dropped by Rocket Mortgage. So this is this is a tournament that is is not elevated. I think it's like above the Honda, below the Genesis that used to have a lot more bigger names because Wyndham is next week and then you have the tour, uh, the tour championships, the FedEx playoffs, the three events. So a lot of golfers used to play this. Uh, they sat out this year. I, I, I expected the field to actually be better than it is. So let's, um, well, what, what's next on the schedule? You said we have the FedEx Cup in route. Yeah, the Wyndham and then the FedEx Cup, the Memphis and Delaware, the tour championships. And golf's over for the PGA Tour. Then the live starts the following week. So what's going on in racing? September. Well, Two great races. This well, one in the Formula One in France. Uh, Charles Leclerc, Ferrari, again on the pole. Best car, running great. Even Matthew Verstappen of Red Bull was right behind him, but he makes a mistake, crashes the car, admits his mistake. He actually messed up the throttle. Tried instead of just having a spin out and dropping a position, tried tried to actually back up and went forward. It sounds like a at a movie almost and crashed into the wall. Um, he's okay, but it was his third retirement of the year through accidents or everything. And right now, Verstappen was able to hold on with the lead. Uh, it was it, with Hamilton second and George Russell Mercedes third. So Mercedes actually had a very good race, but but it was really Verstappen ran away with this. And Ferrari's other driver sites finished last in the field, had a chance, and there was decisions about how to pit him, not to pit him. So Ferrari has been making mistakes all this year. Uh, and really, Leclerc is just, you can see the frustration. You talk about when we talk about the Major League Baseball, hearing him talk, you can hear Leclerc on the radio. He was like almost crying, not because he was hurt, because he's like, I keep making mistakes. I'm so sorry. He's like apologizing to his team. Um, but uh, it looks like Verstappen with 10, ra- 10 races to go, I can't see how he could lose. Um, he's had such a huge lead left, but they have Hungary in 30, July 31st, take three weeks off and go from there. Um, in the NASCAR race in Pocono, they've now have run have 60 years of NASCAR races, uh, only the third time and the first time, actually 70 years of NASCAR races, and only the first time in 60 years that a driver won the race, went home, took the trophy, and they said, hey, like in horse racing, you didn't win. Denny Hamlin won this race. Kyle Busch was second, but they went and checked the cars post-race. They looked and said, there's something on your nose. You don't win anymore. Now, NASCAR, they've threatened this, but they've never done it. They usually find the drivers, penalize the drivers, take points, do some. They've never taken a victory away. And there's been bad things. Like Richard Petty had like the wrong engine in. They've had different tires on the wrong tires on. They've never taken a win away in 60 years. They finally took that win away. And Joe Gibbs says, we were wrong and <laughs> didn't even appeal the penalty. But it was funny. Hamlin said, try to get my trophy back because Jace Elliott was ruled the winner. And they showed that Hamlin's daughter with the checkered flag trophy. And Elliott goes, Daddy, you can keep the trophy. That's okay. And, Daddy, and Chase Elliott goes, I didn't reserve it for the race. I ran a bad race. I'm third, even though it was his fourth win of the year. But I thought it was very historic with the fact that they took the, the race away. Indianapolis Road Course is next week uh, for NASCAR. Kind of reminds you of like horse racing. You know, they go back, you know, a week later and take the win away. Something you definitely don't see uh, pretty much in any sports, NASCAR included. And then I wrote, we very rarely talk about track, but there is a, a match this weekend and you got into it. Well, the World Championships was in, in Oregon, and it's the first time in America, in, I think, ever. And it was it was huge. I mean, this is like, it was in Oregon because Nike is in Oregon, and, and Nike sponsors all the running teams, and all the runners train there, and they have built a special stadium for it. And I was what yesterday. I was just I, I did turn off the Mets game and watched it for two hours. 
the women's 400, Afing Mu, a 20-year-old from New Jersey, won the uh, um, was first American to win the, the world championships. Uh, a tremendous runner. And then the relay races were super exciting. The women's 4x400, the men's 4x400. The Americans just dominated. I mean, they were like almost like a, it seemed like a, a, in, in the men's race, it was like half a, they were a, like a half a late, half a, a whatever, lap around running the race. It just tremendous performances by both American teams. I think America won. This is the most medals, 33 medals, the single most in the 40-year history of the event. Um, and the pole vault is Mondo Duplantis. He's from Louisiana, but he competes for Sweden because his mom's from Sweden and who has the world record. He is dynamic in the pole vault. He's fun. He's laughing around, long hair, everything. He not only won it, but then he broke his own, went back and broke his own world record. So it was exciting. But I, I got into it. I'm telling you, I was just, I was enjoying for two hours watching the world championships. Ira, before we wrap it up, what were you doing again this week? Because I'm pretty jealous. <laughs> Yankees, Mets, City Field. Uh, as I said, it, it's hard to get excited about a Major League Baseball game in July, but uh, I'm really excited for going to this game. And next week we're going to have an author, Jeff Fisher, who uh, wrote the book on Otani. Uh, it's the seminal book that he wrote about Otani, so we're going to learn about Otani and everything. And then the following week we're going to have Tim Frank from the NBA on uh, giving us the third in command of the NBA. So, so a lot of really good guests coming up. I'm real excited about our guests for the rest of the summer. So we're going to get some college football coaches on the show. So a lot happening. I know this is summer. A lot of these sports uh, radio shows take time off, but that you know we're we're going strong, trying to give uh, listeners great content. We always do our best. We're out of time, though. Thanks so much to Jeff Perlman. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Ira on Sports.